Last week in our study of Colossians 3, verses 1 through chapter 4, 1, we learned that because we have died to our old sin natures, and because we have been co-resurrected with Christ, that as a result of that, we should take off the clothing that leads to spiritual failure and put on the clothing that leads to spiritual success. And we went through those lists that Paul provides, and uh, that is on podcast, so you can access that if you'd like to go back if you didn't get to hear it. But today we're going to be looking at Colossians 4, 2 through 18. In verses 2 through 6, we will see Paul's exhortations to bring into your life as a, our lives as Christians two very important spiritual disciplines, prayer and evangelism. And we'll see how Paul ties the two disciplines together. Then as time allows, verses 7 through 18 or what I call the tell so-and-so hello for me section of the, of the letter. Paul started out the letter by identifying himself and saying to whom it was intended, and then he finishes, as he often did with his letters, by listing a, a number of people that are sending greetings from where he was and his group and those that they wanted uh, to hear special instructions from. So let's look at verses uh, 4, 2 through 6 first, and we're going to be quite thorough with these verses and then uh, do what we can with those last verses in closing. What verses 2 through 4 show us is that Paul ends his letter in the same way that he began his letter. If you look back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And then in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1, Paul reveals what he's been praying for them. And I've often thought about when I see these particular verses, this prayer, what a great prayer to pray on behalf of someone you know and love. And so I highly recommend that you take verses 9 through 12 and using the discipline of praying Scripture, pray through that, putting somebody's name in the the, uh, beginning of it, and raise that request up to the Lord. Now, in verses 4, 2 through 4, we see him requesting that the Colossians pray for him. So having set the example of praying for the Colossians, he now has earned the right to ask them to pray for him. And so he begins in verse 2 by saying this. He said, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. That, that devote yourselves to prayer can also be translated continue earnestly in prayer. The word devote comes from a combination of two Greek words, which together mean to be strong towards something. 
And so what he's saying is, I want you to be strong, steadfast, and immovable when it comes to prayer. If you know that one of the shortest verses in the Bible is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 13 or 17, pray without ceasing. Well, that's the same idea that, that Paul is giving here. The word de devote uh, in the Oxford Online Dictionary says it's to give all a, lar a large part of one's time or resources to someone or something. Now, when I, when I read that definition, I, immediately what popped into my mind was the slogan that, that uh, Dabo Sweeney adopted for the Clemson football team when he first started as interim head coach. Can anybody tell me what that two-word slogan was? All in. Well, whether you like Clemson or not, all in is a good concept. And that's exactly what he's asking for. And so he says, he uses the word yourselves, plural, meaning it applied to all of the Colossians, so therefore it applies to all of us, that we should be people of prayer. Now, let's pause for a moment and establish a working definition of prayer. And, and I wrote this out, and I don't know if I like it or not. You can tell me if you do or not. Prayer is a conversation an individual has with God, whether in silence or by speaking, whether by monologue or through dialogue, through which information is exchanged and requests are made by one to the other. It's a lot of words. Saying it's a conversation we have with God whereby we exchange information with him. We exchange requests of one another and uh, hopefully it's a dialogue rather than a monologue. Have any of you ever done the study The Mind of Christ by T.W. Hunt? It's been a long time since it's been in Christian vogue, I guess. But Dr. Hunt was a music professor at Southwest, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary when I was a student. And uh, he later wrote the study for, the, for Lifeway, The Mind of Christ. And in it, he talked, in talking about prayer, uh, he, he talked about a time when he and his wife were real distraught over not having the money they needed within a week or so to pay the tuition for their daughter's next semester at Texas Christian University there in Fort Worth. And so his wife said, you always say that God is your best friend. Well, why don't you pray as if he is? And so he got a thought and it carried it out. He made two cups of coffee, pulled two chairs out of his uh, living room, not living room, his kitchen table, put coffee down in front of each, then sat down and talked to Jesus as if Jesus were sitting in that chair. Well, obviously we can't do that every time we pray, but the spirit of that is what I'm trying to get at. In contrast to Dr. Hunt's two-way prayer experience, my tendency is to make it a one-way conversation, a monologue rather than a dialogue. And Anne Graham Lotz, in her book on the prayer of Daniel, from chapter 9 in Daniel, she said, you know, it's sad how many times we tell God what is on our minds 
without ever asking what's on his. And I know I'm guilty of that. Now, after, after Paul says to devote yourselves, Colossians, to prayer, he then says, keeping alert in it. That can be translated being vigilant in it. Now, it's a present tense participle, meaning once it gets started, it's to be continuous action from then on. And so what Paul is asking us is to discipline ourselves to stay focused during our prayer experiences. In other words, to keep our minds in the game of prayer. When our second grandson, who is now 19, was four or five, he got played soccer like a lot of little kids do. And Jay played hard out in the field, but when they stuck him in the goal, especially when all the action was at the far end of the field where his brother was trying to score, he would turn around and watch the baseball game behind him. <laughs> and so when the action turned and headed his way, we would have to yell his name as loud as we could, turn around, the ball is coming. And then he would, and he'd make a good play, and they'd go back, and he'd turn around and watch the game. Well, to be up front with you, that describes my prayer life a lot of times. That I have trouble focusing because I get distracted, let my mind wander. I begin to think of how I'm going to resolve the prayer requests that I'm making of God, to work on an action plan. Well, and suddenly I'll realize I'm thinking and not praying. It's just a lot easier for me to be to do than it is to be, as in be still and know that I am God. So what are some disciplines and actions that I've heard other people employ that keeps you out of prayer la-la land? Well, pray from a prayer list. Keep a prayer journal. Write out your prayers. If you have to, stand up while you're praying. I have fallen asleep standing up, so I'm not sure that's <laughs> totally good. Pray out loud. I am a much better focused prayer when I pray out loud. But those are just some ways to approach it. Now, as we devote ourselves in prayer, as we keep alert in it, Paul then adds, do so with thanksgiving. Now, my, my translation says with an attitude of thanksgiving. The two words and attitude are added for clarification. I don't quite know why they needed to add it for clarification in my translation, but it did. But, but anyway, Paul is saying with an attitude of thanksgiving, offer your prayers to the Lord on behalf of me and in, in general. Now, what is necessary for an individual to be a grateful person, to have an attitude, a spirit of thanksgiving? Well, let me give you three things I think are essential. It's not the only three, but I think that they're important. One is an understanding and acceptance of one's dependence on God and at times on others without becoming resentful that you're not self-sufficient. Humility, number two, 
an attitude where a person doesn't think of dependency as being beneath them. You can be so proud that you don't express gratitude, that you don't qualify to be a person who's dependent. And then a third one is a non-victim mentality. You see, if someone considers himself to be a victim of some sort, then whatever that person receives as compensation to, or something to rectify that situation, it will be seen as entitlement. And there's no way you can feel entitled and thankful at the same time. And so we, we have a culture of entitlement. And it may be an answer to the question why we are so um, prone not to be grateful. Now, having encouraged them to a committed prayer life, then Paul says, let me give you a prayer request. It's got two parts to it, but I want you to pray for us very specifically so that we'll know when the prayer is answered. And that's the value of praying specific prayers. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I've also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Paul says, I want you to develop the same spiritual discipline of prayer in your life that I am modeling before you uh, at this time. And it helps a whole lot when we make a request of someone else that we're doing the thing that we're requesting of them. And so Paul was desiring this, uh, this discipline of prayer in their lives, and he did so, made it uh, of encouragement uh, by being that himself. Now, he goes on to say that God may open up to us a door for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Now, where was Paul when he wrote this? He was in prison. We don't know which of the three imprisonments in, in the book of Acts for sure that he was in, whether it was there in Jerusalem or Caesarea or, or Rome, but and by the way, I think it was Rome for what, what it's worth. But w when he wrote the prayer request, being in prison, we would not begrudge him if he had said, I want you to pray that these prison doors will be opened so I can get out of prison and get on with my life and fulfill my ministry. Instead, look at what he asked for that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Now, this, this is my thought about this. Paul, what Paul was asking for was an opportunity in his current circumstances to share the gospel. You see, Paul was in prison, but prison wasn't in Paul. Paul was living in those circumstances, but he wasn't living under those circumstances. And so Paul was able 
to see his current circumstance as the context in which the Lord would provide divine appointments for him to share the gospel, for him to share the mystery of Christ. Now, for the benefit of those who were not here three, the third Wednesday when I taught and explained this, or for those who are like me can forget something that quickly, let me do a little review. The mystery of Christ, when Paul uses that phrase, is not using mystery in the sense of mysterious. What he's using it is in this sense. It is a sacred secret once hidden from man, but now revealed to him by God. And so this mystery, Paul used that term because it was a favorite word of the false teachers there in Colossae. They, they had the idea that there was this mysterious level uh, or a level of unknownness that was only attainable by certain believers. And so they were trying to lead the Colossian Christians to believe that there was this next level or higher level of spiritual uh, well-being that if they only followed the things they wanted to add to Christianity, they could achieve it. Well, what Paul was wanting to let them know is this mystery, the mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Back, if you look at chapter 1, verse 27, Paul is saying this has been revealed in its public knowledge. And any believer in Colossae or anywhere else qualifies to know that secret, that uh, mystery that has been revealed. So Christ in you, that salvation in the present through Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, that salvation in the future once you die and go to heaven. Now the request was that I may make it, the declaration of the mystery, clear in the way that I ought to speak. I think that request is the heart request of anybody who has ever shared the gospel or anticipates sharing the gospel. We want to be able to share the gospel clearly so that people who hear our presentations understand it as much as possible and to give the Holy Spirit something to work with in that person's life to lead them to faith in Christ. Now, what we have to be careful of is this, and I and that is we must be careful not to allow our desire to be able to share it clearly as we ought and our desire to be able to answer any question they might ask or respond to any objection they may raise before we're willing to go share the gospel. Some people have this, this idea that not till I'm an expert in it do I dare go and share with somebody because I might mess it up and drive them away from God? Well, I had a seminary professor, Dr. Roy Fish, used to say, you can't drive them further from God. They're already as far as they're ever going to be. <laughs> and so don't worry that you might mess it up and keep you from sharing to start with. Now, he says, to make it clear as I ought to speak, now, there are two directions to go there. Is he saying ought in the sense 
that there's a right way and wrong way to share the gospel? Or is he saying ought in the sense that as I have a duty to do so? I take the second approach that Paul is saying, I, I need to do this. I need to share it clearly because I have a duty to share with those individuals. So what Paul is saying here, not only Colossians, do I want to encourage you to develop the discipline of prayer in your spiritual life, but also the discipline of evangelism. And in doing so, he establishes the important connection between prayer and evangelism. Commentator Dick um, Lucas said, effective evangelism begins with persevering prayer. I've thought about, okay, if prayer is that essential for evangelism, what should I be praying for on my behalf and the behalf of others? Number one, Pray for each of us to have a genuine burden for lost people so as to create in us an expectation and awareness that witnessing opportunities are all around us if we would just look for them. Number two, prayer for specific lost people that we desire to be saved. Can anybody tell me from John 16, 8, the three things that the Holy Spirit is uh, charged with doing in the lives of lost people, convicting them of three things. Judgment, righteousness, one more. Sin. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So an effective prayer to pray on behalf of a lost person is spirit, work in their lives to convict them of the fact that they're sinners separated from God needing and, and we'll go to hell if, if they don't trust Christ. Righteousness, the need to be right with God and to live rightly as a result. Judgment, the fact that there is a day coming where we will all stand before God, and we can say this in here, but you don't say, separate the sheep from the goats. And I don't mean greatest of all time by goats. Okay, number three, pray prayer for ourselves regarding study and preparation so that we can, as clearly as possible, share the gospel. And then praying for the Holy Spirit to intercede during a witnessing encounter with someone so to help them understand what we're saying, the necessity for it, the truth of it, and that God would develop in them a receptivity to what we're sharing. So moving on to verse 5, having shared that prayer request, he comes back with some more instructions as to how to live. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. A companion verse that shares light on this one is Ephesians 5, 15 to 16. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You put those two together and you've got a strong uh, theology there of, of how, how to live. Now, the word conduct in this context means to behave. Have that as your way of living. 
Conduct yourselves with wisdom. With wisdom means that we correctly apply the truth of God to a given life situation or circumstance such that God's intended results occur. It's the ability to apply the truths of God to life circumstances so God's intended results can occur. I, again, on the third session that I did a couple weeks ago, I gave you uh, what is one of my favorite descriptions of God's wisdom that comes from Chip Ingram's book, God Is He Longs For You To See Him. Quoting a professor, seminary professor, he said, God's, God's wisdom is his ability to use the best possible means to accomplish the best possible results for the most possible people for the longest possible time. That's a lot of possibles, but it, it is an effective definition of God's wisdom. So Paul's admonition to conduct yourself with wisdom reminded me when I wrote that uh, down of what I shared with you last week uh, that, that was from uh, Otis Brady, who was a member of our church at Landrum, having come off the 40 years of being a missionary for the IMB down in the Caribbean. And he used to say, we can't do God's part and he won't do our part. Now, what is our part in conducting yourselves with wisdom? Number one, our part is to access his wisdom. First, now where do we access God's wisdom? Here. This is a book of God's wisdom. How to live, how to respond to life circumstances, how to respond to difficult people. I mean, you can go on and on as, as to how to use the wisdom. But wisdom does us no good when we choose to let it lie dormant on the page of our Bible. And wisdom does us no good if ultimately we don't believe it's wise. Now, if we fail to employ it in life circumstances, that may be what we're suggesting, that we really don't believe it's wise or we would do it. A second part of our part is to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, allow him the chance to give understanding regarding that wisdom and how to effectively apply it to life situations. Now, he says to conduct yourselves with wisdom. That's a general principle about how to live life. But then he gets very specific with its application. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Now, the fact that he says there are outsiders suggests that there's such a thing as insiders. Now, who would insiders be in this context? That'd be we. We are the insiders. The Colossian Christians were those who were already on the inside of the body of Christ, the church. 
So what Paul is saying here, this, this is very important. I'm going to read it so that I don't leave something out. When Paul says for the Colossian believers to get themselves with wisdom towards outsiders, to make the most of the opportunity with them, he's saying that the ultimate goal for insiders in the church regarding outsiders is that they help the outsiders become insiders. It's not to create this, this clique, this closed group of insiders, which is what a lot of churches tend to do. The intention is for the insiders to work in the lives of the outsiders so the outsiders can become insiders and continue to grow the group. Now, another thing that we need to understand is this. The opportunity for an outsider to become an insider exists at any moment that an outsider is in the presence of an insider who understands the gospel. In other words, if a lost person is standing beside a saved person, the opportunity to seize the opportunity and to make the most of the opportunity exists. The question is, does the insider take advantage of the opportunity that's standing right or sitting right beside them? That's something we need to wrestle with. Now, verse 6, he continues, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how to respond to each person. Now, again, general instruction for all situations of life. Let your speech always be with grace. Now, that applies to every life circumstance. But the specific application continues the theme of verse 5, that as you are encountering outsiders in an effort to bring them to become insiders, make sure your speech is seasoned with grace. Again, to go back to a companion verse in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace, when it's allowed to season our words, makes our words palatable to the listener and makes them palatable in the same sense that that salt that I put on those bland grits a while ago made those grits, along with the butter, absolutely delicious. Now, again, it's important to see the context here. He's saying when you are in conversation with lost people, make sure your words are seasoned with grace. And then he makes uh, an interesting statement. He said, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. As I sat in, in my study, I was sitting there saying, now how does that work itself out practically? How does my use of words of grace in a conversation with a lost person enable me to understand how best to respond to them in the midst of that encounter? Well, this is the best I can do. Hopefully, it's, it's a help. 
Let's say that you're witnessing a person, a lost person, who becomes defensive and gets argumentative, raises his or her voice. Now, one option we have is to get in the mud with them and raise our voices and get argumentative and defensive and then go away from them in a huff. Now, in the midst of the raised voices, you're definitely not going to be thinking straight as to what is the best next approach in talking with this person about Christ. But let's say, in contrast, in the midst of that, we keep our calm. We respond with words of grace that could de-escalate the situation. In the midst of that, when you're not yelling, you're not screaming, you're not defensive, you can think clearly as to what the best approach would be from there. Now, if you've got a, another idea on that one, I would love to hear it. But that's something that came to my mind. Mark Johnston, in his commentary on this passage, says, when engaging the loss with the gospel, quote, there is no place for harshness, arrogance, Design a patronizing or judgmental spirit in the way Christians address those who have yet to come to faith. A gracious tongue and mouth will ensure that those negatives are not in play during the witnessing experience. Okay. This concludes that the part of Paul's teaching and application that is central to it. But and as we move into seven through eighteen. In the, in the final minutes that we have, the temptation in looking at 7 through 18 is to treat it like one of those long um, genealogies from First Chronicles. Mm -hmm. Say, well, there's nothing but names there, and there's nothing in those verses that will teach me anything except that I'm glad we don't have names like that anymore. <laughs> but you would be wrong to take that approach, to take that approach. So let's, as, as much as we can, let me work down through here and let's see what we can learn from it. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, fellow bond slave in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So the first person we see is Tychicus. Uh, look at those words used to describe him. Beloved, brother, faithful, servant, fellow, bondslave. Those are all admirable qualities to have in our lives uh, for, for someone to say of us. Now, Paul's relationship, Tychicus was with Paul, had been with Paul, but he brought the letter to the Colossian believers. Paul had that much trust in him. Paul sent him to bring them up to date on Paul's circumstances. But he had one other important thing to do, and that, that we find in the next verse when it says, uh, And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Now, to understand Onesimus, you need to read Paul's letter to Philemon. 
which is the only letter that he wrote to an individual to make it into the 13 letters in the New Testament. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. They were in, Philemon was in the Colossian church. Onesimus escaped and on the way out the door stole from Philemon. He makes his way to Rome, at some point gets saved, possibly through the ministry of Paul, but eventually made it into Paul's camp. And Paul and Philemon shares that he was sending Onesimus back with Tychicus so that he could make amends with Philemon, now that they were brothers in Christ. And then at the end he says, by the way, I sure would appreciate it if you'd set him free so he can come back to Rome and help me. So that's, that's who, who Onesimus is. So reconciliation was at the heart of his return and is an important uh, characteristic. Then we find in verses 10 and 11, three different individuals. The first one being Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner sends you his greeting. Also Barnabas' cousin, Mark about whom you received instructions, and we have no idea what those instructions are. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. He, he was a meteorologist in Colossae. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Okay? So these three individuals, uh, the only thing we really know about Aristarchus is he was a fellow prisoner. We don't know if that's symbolic of something or if he was a fellow prisoner. The fact that none of the others were described that way suggests to me that he most likely was. John Mark, you remember, being the cousin of Barnabas, first missionary journey, quits in the middle of it, returns home. Paul and Barnabas at the start of the second one discuss uh, without words of grace, uh, the situation of him going back with them. And uh, they got into enough disagreement that they split up. Reconciliation has happened at some point with Paul and John Mark. I just would love to know where Barnabas has been all this time. He's one of my favorites. Jesus, who was called Justice, Jesus being a common name in the, that culture, at that time, the only thing we know about him is in this verse, when he's described as being one of the three, those three being from the circumcision. And what, what that meant, they were Jews. And, and Paul says, they are the only fellow workers I have right now with me who are from the circumcision. And that means they were the only ones who understood the distinction between law and grace from a Jewish standpoint like Paul could. So they were very helpful to him. 12 and 13, we, we are introduced to Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of your number, means that he, he came out of the Colossian church, but what we know from uh, earlier in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, he was one that took the gospel to the Colossians. So we could say he planted the church. He said, a bond slave of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings. 
always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. What I see is important in that is he, he describes him as a prayer warrior. Uh, always laboring earnestly for you. And I wrote in my notes, always laboring earnestly is what separates the average believer's prayer life from those of a true prayer warrior. True prayer warriors keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. They do the heavy lifting that is required for effective prayer. They pray with intensity. True prayer warriors like Epaphras also pray specifically. In his case, he prayed that the Colossians might stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. And what serious Christian wouldn't want somebody praying for them those prayer requests all the time? How did he have uh, such an intense prayer for the Colossians? He has a deep concern for you and those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. He had a deep burden for the Colossian believers they were his spiritual children. Now, how do I know that describes a true prayer warrior? I live with one. I've often said, if you want to be prayed for, tell me. If you really want to be prayed for, tell them. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his grievings and also Demas. Luke, you know, was a doctor he traveled with Paul. He chronicled their experience and wrote it down uh, in, in the book of Acts. Somebody pointed out, it's interesting that Paul, who had the gift of healing, traveled with a doctor. Verses 15 and 16, Paul turns it around and uh, he says, um, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nympha. Uh, who's a woman uh, that had a house church. Then he mentions that there was a letter to the Laodiceans, and he wanted them to swap letters. But what we don't know is what the letter to the Laodiceans said because we don't have it. For some reason, God didn't want us to have the opportunity to, to read it. And then the last person he introduces is, is, is Archippus, he just says to him, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And that's uh, a, a request, and it's all we know about him. Now, let me just real, 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 real quick give you a few life principles based on these final verses. The other life about prayer and evangelism, I've already given you those. Number one, never take for granted the importance of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and helping you survive your journey of faith and ministry. We need each other. It is a fool who tries to go it alone in the spiritual life. Number two, never neglect or take for granted the ministry God has given you. We should all live so as to earn the Lord's well done, thou good and faithful servant, regarding the ministry he's given us. Number three, Never neglect to remember those who are in chains. Paul said, remember my chains. Could be prison, but it could be a, an imprisonment and an addiction. 
imprisonment to an unforgiving spirit. We need to remember those who are in chains. Number four, never close the door on the possibility of reconciliation with those from whom you are estranged. We would never have dreamed that John Mark would be with Paul at this point in his life, in Paul's ministry. To have Onesimus reconciled with Philemon when he probably had the right to kill him as a runaway is something we would not have expected. And last, never let the limitations of life keep you from serving God. Notice the last verse. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Some say that Paul did that because he, he had eye problems from the road to Damascus, bright light, and, and couldn't see to write. We don't know if it was that or if he just said, y'all probably can't read my handwriting, so I let somebody else write it for me. I don't, I don't know what the reason is. But Paul did not let whatever handicap he had keep him from fulfilling his ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this whirlwind tour through the book of Colossians, and I pray that each of us uh, would be willing to go back and uh, work through this book because of all the the wisdom and all the uh, spiritual truth that it has to share. I thank you for each of these who's been here today and pray, Lord, that you bless them as a result of the time they've given to the study of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here.